Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. If you have your uh, Bibles, we'll actually be in Matthew chapter 6. I just wanted to torture Zach by making him read those names. No, I'm kidding. We were going to be in Ezra chapter 7. That's why I had Zach read it. But this morning on the way over here, I changed my sermon. I think it'll make sense why I changed it uh, here in just a minute. If you're using one of our Bibles, Matthew 6 is on page 552. Now, uh, today is a great day for me normally. Uh, It is the greatest day for all race fans. There's 1,200 miles of amazing racing going on. Started at uh, 7 a.m. with the Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, And then it's the Indianapolis 500. And then it's the Coca-Cola 600. That's 1,200 miles. Literally, if I wasn't a pastor all day, from 6.30 in the morning until about 10 o'clock at night, I would just be on the couch eating nachos and watching cars go around and around. (laughs) Which might sound like torture to you. So I believe that it was... The hand of God that would make my birthday be on Memorial Weekend. My birthday is May 31st. So every uh, you know, May I get a, a, a birthday gift from God. Uh, I get to watch a whole bunch of racing. Now, I think it's the hand of Satan that has led me to work every Sunday, including <laughs> on the greatest day of racing. So I, I say all of that to say that this is uh, maybe going to be a short sermon uh, so that I can get to my... <laughs> Get to my racing. That's, that's the reason why I say all of those things. Uh, that, that is the, the main part of what Ezra chapter 7 is saying in all seriousness. It's saying uh, that the, God's hand was on Ezra. That God was the one who was doing all of these things. We took a long break from Ezra and Nehemiah, 10 weeks for Easter. And I plan on being back into it this week. And, and we we're going to look at the sovereignty of God, which is how it actually works. Now, when we think of the sovereignty of God, we tend to think of God up there as pulling strings and doing things for us. When I pray, God, take away the cancer, what I want is a miracle. I want like almost magic. I want to show up and the cancer to not be on the x-ray anymore. That's what I think of when I think of God's sovereignty. But what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is how God's sovereignty actually usually works. It doesn't work in miracles. It works through the decisions of God's people. It is God orchestrating timing and places and people to get his will across. As we read Ezra chapter 7, we see things that look like Ezra is the one doing the things. Ezra is the one leading the people. Ezra is the one putting in the work. And then at the end of saying that, it says, and this was all because God's hand was on him. To which we as modern Christians think, no, it wasn't God's hand. It was Ezra's hand. But that is to completely miss the point of what God's sovereignty is. God is sovereign in all things, including those things that seem really ordinary to you. So when God heals your cancer through medicine, it is no less the sovereignty of God than if it were to be almost like magic and be off of the x-ray. Because God was the one who knew when that doctor who would invent that way of healing that cancer would be born. God knew when you would be born. God knew what hospital you would go to. God knew the decisions that you would make that would lead to this happening. God's sovereignty and our choices often work together. And this is something that we don't like. It makes us uncomfortable. And so I knew I could not stand up here this week and talk about God's sovereignty and not address the tragedy that took place this week in Texas, where 21 people lost their life. Because if I stand up here and I tell you God is in control, if I stand up here and I tell you about God's sovereignty, and then you have that rolling around in the back of your mind, you can begin to think that God is not good. You can begin to wonder where God is. And if God is in control, then why did this thing happen? And the reason why this thing happened 
is because of great, great evil, evil beyond what we can even imagine. And the reason it happened is because of the choices of people. And the way that things will get better is through the choices of people, through the transformation of God's people. And so I want to talk today about what we do in responding to tragedies like this. And I could get up here every single week and talk about a tragedy that happened in this world. I really could. And generally, I'm not one who allows the culture to de- define what I talk about and when I talk about it. Uh, a lot of times things take over national news and there's a lot of pressure on me. There's a lot of pressure on you to grab a megaphone and tell people what you think about it. Uh, we call this social media. You know, I'm immediately supposed to begin giving you my thoughts and my ideas. I don't want to be that type of person. I want to be the type of person who stands for things all throughout the year, not just when something happens in the nation and I'm supposed to have an opinion on it. Now, I want to care about certain things that are important to me all year long, not just when CNN or Fox News tells me to care about it. And this is especially true for me as a pastor because I've got a big megaphone and I've got to determine when I'm going to use it and how I'm going to use it. And the reason I want to talk about this specific tragedy is because I believe it's important for all of us in all tragedies. Because here's the news that none of us want to hear, but it's just simply true. This will not be the last tragedy like this. There will be more tragedies like this. I love you, and that's why I'm telling you this. There will be deep tragedy, probably worse than this in the future. And the question we have as Christians is how do we respond to it, and what are we to do about it? And I get discouraged because I think a lot of us have an ill idea of what we are supposed to do about it. And I believe that we often have the right answer, but we go about it the wrong way. Uh, on Facebook, which is you know the place where you find all truth and answers to everything... Uh, this week, I, I saw a lot of takes from different Christian friends and uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that I respect. And, uh, and, I, and I saw a lot of takes from you know, national pundits and, and these sorts of things. And a lot of it makes me mad. A lot of it just, quite frankly, makes me kind of sad. Uh, and one of the things that I think is right is people say the way that we fix this is through prayer. The way that we fix this is through prayer. And I believe that totally to be true. I think prayer is the answer to this, but probably not how you think it is. Uh, Because God's sovereignty works through our choices and through our actions, through our actions. And I I, I heard a a person, I didn't hear a person, I saw their post, and it made me sad because they were right. They said the American church often in times like this say, we're sending our thoughts and our prayers, we're sending our thoughts and our prayers, and then they do nothing about it. And this person was wanting some sort of political change, and that doesn't even matter what the political change is. But I understand the basic premise of it. They think that prayer is just us talking to the ceiling and nothing is happening. And for a lot of Christians, it is because what you think of when you think of prayer is that God is a genie, that God is supposed to just fix it. So we pray a prayer, God fix it. Okay, I did what I'm supposed to do. It's over. But God is not a genie, and this is not how God's sovereignty generally works. There are miracles, and we praise God for those miracles. But most of his miracles look really ordinary. And what prayer is supposed to do is not change God like he's a vending machine or a genie. But what prayer is supposed to do is to change us. And as we are transformed one at a time, the world is transformed. Uh, Often what we do is we think there needs to be systematic or political change. And I'm saying there's nothing wrong with systematic or political change. I I think all of us would agree that politics need to be changed, that systems need to be changed. Of course there's not a perfect system. We're all humans running these systems. These things need to change, but that's not how lasting and true change will actually take place. This is what we see in the ministry of Jesus. Throughout his ministry, he focuses on individuals, transforming individuals. And his disciples get so upset because he's not transforming systems. And he goes into the Roman Empire and they think we're going to take out the Roman Empire. And then he allows the Roman Empire to kill him. Why? Because Jesus was about inside out change. 
I can change a system. I can change the rules and people will still break the rules. You know why? Because the reason why somebody shoots other people, the reason why murder happens is because of something that is inside of them, not because of some rule that is imposed upon them or not imposed upon them. And I hear it, and it doesn't matter. Friends, again, this is me being honest because I love you. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left side of the political aisle or the right side of the political aisle. I've seen this week people who think that their politics have the solution to make sure this never happens again. I've seen people on the right side of the aisle say, what we need is we need security guards guarding the schools. And that might be right. That might be. I don't know what would help. That might actually help. But what I want you to know is that will not eliminate this problem. Because what happens when the heart of the security guard is the one who is broken? And when the protector turns into the violator? And I've heard some people say, we need to get rid of all the guns. This would be more on the left side. We need stricter gun laws. And that very well might be the answer. I don't know. I'm not a politician. I'm a pastor. And the moment I become a politician up here is the moment you need to find a new pastor. Because I'm in the pastor business. Not in the Democrat or Republican business. But I've heard people say we take all the way the guns. But here's the thing. There's been mass murder before there was guns. You know why? Because it's in the heart. There's something in the heart of people that needs to be changed. And it starts with my heart. And it starts with your heart. And it's through transforming us in prayer with God that the world becomes a better place. That the evil is squished out of this world. That the darkness is overcome by the light. This is the way that we change things. And it comes through praying the way that Jesus said to pray. And so we're going to look at the most famous prayer. It's a prayer that you've probably said multiple times. But if we're not careful, we can just read over the words and not even think about them. And that is the Lord's Prayer as we see in Matthew chapter 6. I love the Lord's Prayer because as they come to it, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes I've wondered the same thing. You know, how do I pray? Praying is so difficult sometimes. I think it's the reason why a lot of us don't do it at all. You know, I, I, uh, I used to think that my prayers had to be like hour long and I had to pray in the King James. Thou hast most beautifulest God of thy heavens. You know, you hear people pray like that. And I always felt super inadequate, like my prayers weren't enough. In fact, I remember as a kid, I was an, uh, an offering boy, which meant I got to come and, and, you know, I'd carry the plate up. And uh, there's three of us. And Michelle, who's the worship leader, would choose one of the boys to pray. Now, you might think, well, you're a pastor, so you loved praying. No, I hated praying. I did that thing where you don't make eye contact so they don't pick you. You know, like I'm trying to send all the nonverbal cues. I do not want to pray looking at the floor. And uh, I always felt super inadequate because my friend Jason and Logan were the other offering boys and they could pray, man. I mean, they, 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 they brought down heaven when they prayed. It was amazing. It's like I could never pray like that. And then when Michelle would you know, go around all of my nonverbal cues that I was sending her and pick me anyways, my prayer would be something like, uh, God, thanks. Amen. You know? <laughs> Like, you know, everybody's encouraging at the church, but even then, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, maybe that's not this kid's gift, you know. <laughs> but that's not how we are to pray. And the disciples maybe are feeling this way, too. So they say, Jesus, how do we pray? And what we're going to see in this text is Jesus shows them how to pray. And I'm going to give you uh, five things that we ought to be praying for for this tragedy, but also in all tragedies. These are the five things we ought to be praying for at all times. But first, I want to go to God and I want to pray because that's only right. <laughs> but we can't talk about prayer without praying. So join me. Father, we need you. Psalm 22 uh, sums up probably the way a lot of people feel. And I can only imagine the way that the parents in Texas are feeling right now. At the beginning of Psalm 22, it says, My God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? 
God, we can feel that way. We can feel that way because you tell us you're in control and we believe you're in control. But then things like this happen and we wonder why they would happen if you really are in control. Have you abandoned us? Have you left us? Have you forsaken us? But God, as that psalm goes on, it tells us that you hear our cries, that you listen to the cries of your people, and that even when it feels like you have abandoned us, you have not. And the psalm that begins with asking why you have forsaken us ends with praising you for the way that you have loved and led us. God, we pray for something like that to happen today. We pray, God, that we would see the power of prayer and that we would leave here praying people, not praying people in the sense that we just pray and think we're done. No, the kind of prayer that transforms us to be people of action because that is how your sovereignty works. It works with us having responsibility and with the way that you lead us. God, it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Therefore, this is Jesus speaking, Therefore, you should pray like this. Thank you, Jesus. We would like to know how we are to pray. Therefore, you should pray like this. He says, Our Father in heaven. I want to stop right there. Did you notice he says, Our Father in heaven? Not my Father, our Father. This is incredibly important. In fact, this is one of the most important things that we can remember is the fact that we are children of God. And that means we have brothers and sisters in God. This goes back to the old Hebrew idea that really a lot of Western culture is built upon, which is the Imago Dei, that we are all made in the image of God. Now, this is a problem for people who have a totally naturalistic worldview, uh, which is what a lot of people have. And not saying they're not just saying that science explains how God created it, but they're saying that science is God. You know, not that evolution did happen, but that evolution is its own personal force outside of God. And that's all that there is. Now, the problem when you come with a totally naturalistic view is that you begin to see humans as apes. We are just a little bit more evolved than the next kind of species there is, which then makes it almost impossible to not take the next step of saying that some humans are better than other humans. That's why Charles Darwin, who's the founder of evolution, would tell us that uh, there are some races superior than other races. This is actually what racism is rooted in. This is what sexism is rooted in. The male is obviously superior to the female. The female is obviously superior to the male. Or this race is superior to that race. Or the rich are superior to the poor. All of these thoughts come out of is I'm just a little bit better of an ape than you are. But when I remember, no. It does not matter whether you're red, white, yellow, or black. You're made in the image of God. It does not matter whether you are rich or poor. You are made in the image of God. It doesn't matter whether you are a Christian or some other religion. You deserve respect. You know why you deserve respect? Because you are made in the image of God. When our world forgets this, shootings like this are a lot more frequent. You know why it makes us so mad that that man went in there and he shot those babies? There's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons it makes us mad is because we know that that wasn't his place. He didn't get to decide whether they lived or whether they died because they are image bearers of the divine God. There's a special spark within them. Squashing them is not the same thing as squashing a spider. Killing them is not the same thing as an ape that dies. You might love animals. You might be a proponent of animal rights. And I would say that is good. I love my dog more than I love most of you. Okay? <laughs> Just being honest. But there's difference in my dog Bella and a human being. There is a vast difference because you are an image bearer of God. This is how the Bible starts. God creates the world. He creates everything. And the climax of creation is human beings, Adam and Eve. 
The angels look at us in awe. The angel. Sometimes people say, you know, when I die and I get my wings and I become an angel, and I want to say, no, you're not an angel. That'd be a demotion. You're a human, a divine image bearer of God. And this is what we need to remember when we pray our Father, our Father, that there are children of God everywhere. There are children of God in all different kinds of of political systems. There are children of God that are Democrats. There are children of God that are Republicans. There are children of God who are anarchists and they hate the government. They're all over, irregardless of your political view, your race. No, you are children of God, made in the image of God. And friends, this is really important for us to remember because John, in 1 John, he tells us that if you say that you love God but you hate your brother and sister, other children of God, then you are a liar and the love of God is not within you. So when we pray, we pray to our Father. The next word's important too. Father, Father, our Dad. In, in, in the Greek, it's Abba. Our Abba. We pray to Him. Now this is so different. Now we've gotten used to this because Jesus has so transformed the world and so transformed the way we think about God that it's normal for us to have a personal God that cares about us. But if you were to go back before Jesus, you would find that the gods didn't really care about you. That's why you had to do sacrifices. You had to do all of these things just trying to get the God's attention. But that's not our God. He's very personal. He's not just our king, he's our dad. That if we actually believe as Christians that through the blood of Jesus Christ we were adopted, that we went from an enemy of God to a child of God, and that nothing this world does can revoke that adoption, if we really believe that, then we pray to him differently. We pray to him like our dad. We talk to him like he's our father. You know, I think a lot of us, we get frustrated because we don't feel like our voice is very heard. Uh, it's, it's really hard. Like, for instance, I cannot call the president today. Well, I could call, but he won't answer. <laughs> you know, and let's say by some chance he did answer. Do you think my opinion would sway him to make any decisions? No. I can't even call my United States senator. I'll probably get some intern who will say, I'll take down your phone call and we'll have him call you back. And he's never going to call me back. But I can talk to the God of this universe. And not just talk to him, but he's my father. Now, how... Would you look at it differently if you actually believed that? If you lived like you believed that? You know, this is one of the things I'm really passionate about it as sin, is I don't want us just to be people who say we believe these things. Because all of us probably, or most of us anyways, would raise our hand if I said, do you believe God is your Father? Yes, I believe He's my Father. But do you live like He's your Father? Do you live like the most powerful being, the one who sustains all of life, is your dad and He wants to talk to you? I, I, I often don't live that way. I, I, I'm trying to get humans' attention. I'm trying to get somebody here in the earthly realm who can take care of things. And I very rarely say, Dad, will you give me wisdom on this? Because I don't even know what to do. Dad, will you help us with this? Because I don't know what we are supposed to do. Remember, I was at a church service one time, and this girl freaked me out a little bit because I'd never heard anybody pray this way. Uh, When she was praying, she prayed to Papa God. Papa God. Now, the first time she said it, I thought, something's in my ears. You know, know, Papa God, what, what is this? Uh, but she kept going on. She said it again. Papa God, Papa God, we prayed. And I was like, I don't know. You know, there's got to be a Bible verse against this somewhere. And it was really convicting to me because she had a lot more intimate relationship with God than I did. Go back to that King James praying thing. I've always prayed to my heavenly father. You know why? Because everybody before me prayed to their heavenly father. Now you tell me if there's a difference in the intimacy level. Like if your kids come to you and say, heavenly father, you're probably in a cult. <laughs> You know, that's weird. There's something odd in your family going on. No, he's dad or daddy or any of these things. And you might not be comfortable praying that way in public, but I think there should be a little bit of that in our prayers 
when we're by ourselves, when we're in our car, when we're frustrated, when we don't know what's going on. Just like if you were to call your dad and you were frustrated about a decision he made, what would you say to him? You'd probably say things in a way that was not all that specific or ritual or litur- uh, you know, liturgical. You would say things the way you felt. You would talk to him like he was your dad. Well, your dad is in heaven. It is your heavenly father. You're a heavenly papa. You're papa God. Now, I'm never personally going to pray to Papa God from this pulpit. But you better believe that sometimes when I'm praying at home, I pray to my dad. I say, Dad. I think that's a good habit for all of us to remember that he is our father. Now, with that out of the way, that we remember that we're image bearers of God and that he is our father, there are some things that we need to actually pray for. Uh, And one of the things that's dangerous about me doing a sermon that I prepared literally 20 minutes ago is that I might say some things that I'm not supposed to say. Uh, Good thing is I can edit it before it goes out on the podcast, but you guys don't write down. If I say something stupid, don't write it down, okay? (laughs) This has been percolating in my heart all week, but I I spent all week preparing a different sermon. So we'll see how this goes. But I got five things from the Lord's Prayer that I think we are to pray in this situation and in all tragedies. The first one is this. We need to pray that God's name would be honored as holy. We need to pray that God's name amongst all people, in our hearts first, but amongst all people, that God's name would be honored as holy. It's the first thing. Jesus says next here, he says, your name, your name, God, your name, Father, be honored as holy. What does that mean? Well, the word holy means set apart, unlike anything else. You know, when you stand before the Grand Canyon, that's an example of holy. You stand there and you look and you go, wow, there is nothing else like this. Holy is the only word I have to describe this. Or if you've never been to the ocean, you know, when I was uh, little, uh, my little sister, uh, when she was four or five, she thought Fort Supply was the ocean. We could not get it out of her head. The Fort Supply Lake was just a toxic sewage dump. It, it was not actually the ocean. And uh, we'd go to Coors uh, Island, and she thought that was the beach. Coors Island does a lot of things. It is not the beach. So you can imagine when we went to Florida for the first time, and we were standing on the Atlantic Ocean. And she saw this mass of water as far as your eyes could see. And this sand that was like baby powder. You can imagine that my little sister understood holiness for the first time. This is nothing like Fort Supply Lake. (laughs) And in the same way, when we think of God, that's how we're supposed to think of Him. There's nothing like you. You are totally set apart from anything in this world. We grasp for descriptions of God. We call Him our Father and our Dad because it's the only thing our little human brains can contain. If you think of your brain as a cup and you think of God as the ocean, you're like a little red solo cup and you're trying to scoop in the ocean. The person who understands the most about God in this world understands nothing about God. He is huge. He is holy. He is to be totally set apart. We answer to Him and Him alone. And the reason why our world often does wrong things. And the reason why we, as people, often do wrong things is because we forget this. We forget that He's holy and set apart. He deserves our total allegiance unlike anything else. And what happens is I begin to think I'm like God. I get to decide for myself what is right and what is wrong. Do you really think Hitler and Stalin would have killed hundreds of millions of people if they believed that when they died they would have to stand before a holy God? No. They did not believe it, and that is why they were able to do the things they were able to do. In fact, this is why I've, I've heard, uh, I can't remember his name because, again, I prepared the sermon 20 minutes ago. Um, but he's an atheist thinker, and he said, I don't believe in God, but I pray that every world leader believes in God. And they said, why do you pray that every world leader believes in God? Because they have all the power, and I want them to know that there is somebody outside of this world who's holding them accountable to that power. 
The most dangerous thing you can have is somebody with a lot of power and they don't think they have to answer to anybody. How do you go in and shoot innocent children? Because you believe that death is your way out. Because you believe that there is no higher accountability that you will have to answer to. I found myself disappointed this week that he died. That he did not have to face judgment and justice. As many of you probably felt as well. But just because he didn't face judgment and justice on this side of earth does not mean that he didn't face judgment and justice. Adolf Hitler committed suicide because he thought that was the easier way out. I guarantee you, a moment after he committed suicide, he was wishing he could go back and face whatever we gave him. Because to stand before an almighty God after you have committed the most heinous of sins, which is to take out one of his divine image bearers, to take what is only rightfully his, which is the power of life and death, into your own hands, you do not want to stand in front of Abba, in front of a dad of whom your children you have just killed. But when we forget this, when we forget that He's holy, that He is to be honored above all else, these kind of unthinkable tragedies happen. And it starts with us, friends. Now you think this tragedy is way worse than yours, and the results of it are. Without a doubt, the results of it are way worse than anything you or I have done. But the seed that causes it is the same thing in you and I. It's when we decide that we know better than God. It's, it's when we decide that God is, is really just too small for us, and, and we know better than what God does. We begin to think, we never say it this way, unless you're David Koresh. We never say it this way, but we say, I am God. You know, I am the one who's the Almighty who decides what is right and what is wrong. That's a dangerous place to be. So number one, we pray that His name would be honored as holy. Number two, is we pray that His kingdom would come. Look at verse 10. Pray that His kingdom would come. Verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we all want, isn't it, friends? That earth and heaven would become one. And this is ultimately where things are headed. Uh, oftentimes when we think of heaven, we think of when we die, uh, which is it's a fine way to think about it, but that's not actually what the Bible talks about when you think about what you're thinking. Uh, when we die right now, it's kind of an intermediate state where we don't really know a whole lot about it. We know we'll be with the Lord. We know it'll be great. It's kind of a disembodied thing. We don't have a lot of information about it. When we think of heaven, we're actually thinking about when Jesus comes back. Because when Jesus comes back and he brings us with him and the dead are rise, we will live in a world where earth and heaven have officially joined. That God's will and heaven and earth are the same. That there is no sickness, there is no death, there certainly is no school shootings. Because God's will is the only will that matters in this new earth. And this is what we pray for now. I hear a lot of Christians praying, and I've been guilty of it myself. I pray that God would take me to heaven. I want away from this world. That's not what Jesus says to pray, though, is it, friends? No, He doesn't pray that we would be taken out of the world. He prays that heaven would be brought into the world. That His kingdom would grow. That His light would grow. And this is what we as the church are all supposed to be all about. We are supposed to be bringing the kingdom of God as we preach the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit and we live the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is to spread And to get better and better and better. Jesus says it's like this. It's like a mustard seed. Mustard seed is the the smallest of seeds. It wasn't Jesus' time. Uh, The smallest of seeds. But it goes into the ground and it grows into this massive bush. This massive tree. Jesus says, in which everyone can find shade. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be. As we go into the ground and we grow. As we grow here in northwest Oklahoma. The kingdom of God should be brighter. There should be shade for people. And in a perfect world where the kingdom of God was everywhere, there would be no school shootings because there would be no room for it. There would be shade for everybody. 
But friends, here's what I know. As the light grows, also the darkness grows. So as the light pushes out the darkness, the darkness fights harder. As Jesus' kingdom grows, Satan's kingdom shrinks. And if you've ever seen a king whose kingdom is shrinking, they do some pretty desperate and wild things. And this darkness spreads. But we must, friends, not be trying to spread more darkness. No, we fight darkness with light. And so we pray, God, bring your kingdom to earth. And that kingdom starts where? Starts in my home. Starts in my heart. And as the kingdom spreads in this place, so then the kingdom will spread in the world. Number three, we need to pray for the affected to have their daily bread. We need to pray for those who have been affected by these tragedies to have their daily bread. Look at what Jesus says, uh, verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. This convicted me this week because when I thought about the prayers that I prayed about this tragedy, I realized, probably about Thursday, that I had not yet prayed for the parents of any of these kids. <laughs> you know, I prayed for wisdom. I prayed over politics. I prayed over some of you guys because uh, some of you guys are crazy. And I'm like, God, help them not to do anything crazy. Uh, I'm just kidding. I didn't pray that. Maybe I did. I don't know. But I had not prayed for the actual families that were affected. Is there any more practical prayer? You guys are parents. Some of you are parents. You know this. Is there any more practical prayer to pray for those parents than that God would just give them enough to get through the day? They can't think about next week or next month or 10 years from now. They just need God's grace today. Some of them struggled to get out of bed this morning. We need to be praying that God would give them grace today. Now, it's easy for us to pray that prayer, but we're also called as Christians to actually help with that. The way God answers the prayer of daily bread is through his people. And it talks about daily bread in the sense of a spiritual sense. Yes, I want God to give them the grace they need to stand up today because it's going to be difficult. And I can't even imagine being at the funeral, but they also need actual monetary support. I actually found a verified fundraiser and we're not taking the offering today because I want you to go home and pray about it. But I found a family that had the least amount of money given to them. And I don't know, it might be different now, but I picked them. And we're going to give uh, an offering next week. And every ounce of the offering is going to go to that family. Every bit of it is going to go to them. Because one thing they don't need to be thinking about right now is a grocery bill or a paycheck. And that's something that we can practically do here from Northwest Oklahoma. And so it's easy for me to get on Facebook and talk about politics and talk about what I think ought to be done. And I'm talking to basically nobody because nobody's listening to me anyways. I could have the perfect policy right now and I could share it on Facebook. And you know who would care? Nobody! But I can sacrificially give so that a family doesn't have to worry about their next meal. So that a mama who doesn't even know how she's going to get out of bed tomorrow cannot have to worry about the bill that's coming due. I can do that. And friends, I don't ever use guilt to make you give. I don't do it. I don't want to make guilt you into giving. But I'm not above it in this case. I, I, if you feel guilt, I don't care what you feel. This is the time to give. And if you're not going to give now towards this, then stop talking about it. If I could just be totally bluntly honest with you. Because you don't really care. All you care about is being heard. If you have the power to make some sort of change and you don't do it, you're a coward. And you need to keep your mouth shut because we need to learn from people who are actually doing something. And by the way, this is how change is actually made. It feels so small, doesn't it? I mean, I want to change the laws so things don't happen again. What is my $500 going to do? What is my $5,000 going to do? Whatever God calls you to give. Well, I can tell you that you might be surprised what God does with it. 
Who knows what happens when this lady sees months from now and she's finally able to look at her donations list that she sees all of these names and she sees this church in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, who gave an outrageous amount of money. What God might do with that in her life. Who knows? But I know that we're called to do it. So this week, here's your task from me, Pastor Blake. The end of the service next week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put on an emotional pad even. I'm going to be an emotional pad behind me. You guys are going to be crying. I'm going to put a picture of the girl and her family on there. And you guys this week are going to pray, God, what do you call me to give towards this? Not, God, do you call me to give? He called you to give. He told me. Okay, On the way over here, sent Gabriel the angel. Blake, they're supposed to give money. Okay, You don't even need to ask him if you're supposed to give. You ask him what you're supposed to give towards this. And we're going to have a big offering, hopefully the biggest offering we've ever had. And we're going to take every single penny of it and we're going to send it off to Texas. Because we can be a part of helping them with their daily bread. That's something, friends, that we can actually do. Every week we say we are a sent people serving people. And we don't serve people by just praying that somebody else provide for their daily bread and then yell about it on Facebook. No, we serve people by actually providing them with their daily bread. So we pray this prayer for them, and we also get to be the answer to this prayer. And that's pretty awesome. Number four, we're almost there. I know this is a heavy sermon, but I don't know how to make it unheavy. And I think it's supposed to be heavy. I think some of us need a whip to the back sometimes. At least I know that I did. That's why I'm preaching this morning, because God's been whipping me all week about this. Number four is we need to pray for forgiveness, and we need to praise God for His forgiveness. Pray for forgiveness, and pray God, praise God for His forgiveness. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts the way that you have forgiven us. See, I, I can't look at the grace of God and then not also pour out the forgiveness to other people. And this is why it's so important that I praise God for the forgiveness that He has shown me. You know, in a time like this, it really highlights uh, God's wrath. I think a lot of us, we get uncomfortable with God's wrath when we think about ourselves most of the time. We think that a loving God would have no wrath, that He would be totally okay with whatever sin we ever committed until we see a sin so atrocious as this one. We see a sin like this, and what do we all want? We want justice. We want there to be justice served. We're mad. It doesn't matter who we're mad at. We want to take it out on somebody. So if the guy who shot him's not here and we can't take it out on him, we'll take it out on his family. Or we'll take it out on the police that were there that was supposed to do something. Or we'll take it out on the political aisle that we don't agree with. We're just mad. We want justice. We want somebody to be held accountable for these things. And then on the same token, we say, but God, He should not hold anybody accountable for anything because that would be loving. No, it wouldn't. Right now, if we had somebody here who said, you know what, I don't see what the big deal is. I don't see why everybody cares that he went in there and he shot innocent children and innocent teachers who were doing nothing. I don't don't see why it's a big deal. I think we should just forgive the guy and, and let it all go. We would not look at that guy and say, what a loving, merciful guy. We would say, what a cold hearted, ignorant fool. See, and this is the way that God ought to see us, friends. That same murderous seed that we call hate is within all of us. And if we deserve the the punishment of God, we above all deserve the punishment of God because we did the worst thing possible. When God was here, we killed Him. When God walked amongst this earth, He took on flesh. What did we do? We killed Him. And you say, like, I wasn't there. I didn't kill Him. The same seeds that are within you are the same seeds that grew into the death of Jesus, that killed Him for our sins. It was your sin that bound Him there, that He died for. And when I remember that I deserve this kind of justice, the way I feel, the anger I feel towards these individuals or towards just in general, this wrath that I feel, 
I'm reminded of God's great grace. That God would send His only Son to these people who spit in His face with spit glands that He created. They would yell mocks at Him with air and lungs that He allowed them to have. And at the end, what does He say? He does not say, Father, rain down fire on them. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is difficult for us. It's why Paul says that the cross is often considered foolishness to the world. You mean God would even forgive them? God would, God would even forgive child molesters and, and school shooters? There must be a limit to His grace somewhere. And God says there is no limit. And the world says that's foolish then. There must be a limit. And yet, God's boundless grace comes to us as it comes to those people. And you think, well, if we forgive them, then these things will never get better. We must fight back with wrath. But friends, let me remind you what caused this shooting. It was a seed of hate that grew into thoughts, that grew into action. And if we answer that result of hate with more hate, we are only furthering the problem. We are not fixing the problem. I can hate the Democrats. I can hate the Republicans. I can hate you. I can hate the policemen that were there. I can hate a whole list of people. But what would it accomplish besides put more hate into this world? And when that hate is fully grown, what does it lead to? It leads to more school shootings. This is why when God comes in flesh, He lays down His life. Because it was through laying down His life that actual transformation took place. It was through the cross of Christ that we actually then began to receive the healing of Christ. Number five. This is the last one. And uh, Band, if you guys want to go ahead and come up, you can. We need to pray for help in the spiritual world. We need to pray for help in the spiritual world. Look at what he says at the end here. Verse 13. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I know we live in a world that is uh, very enlightened, and we look at Satan, and we look at demons, and we kind of think, I don't know if I really believe that part of it all. You know, it seems a little foolish to think that Satan or demons might be involved until something like this happens, in my mind. Because I don't know what else you call what that man did besides satan- satanic, s- demon-inspired at the worst. I don't, know what, I don't know what you call what Adolf Hitler or any of these terrible people do sometimes besides satanic. It's not normal what happens. And oftentimes what we think is that Satan works in the way that horror movies work. Which I don't know why any of you guys watch horror movies. Raise your hand if you watch horror movies. Okay, good. Luke, that explains a lot. Of, explains a lot about Luke. You guys are like, I'm not raising my hand. You just been criticized. I don't even know what you're going to do. <laughs> I never, I never pay to be scared or sad. My wife loves to be sad. Every show she watches is depressing. <laughs> This is us, Grey's Anatomy. I'm like, every time somebody's dying of something, and you know, they just make the situation as sad as possible. She's bawling afterwards. I'm like, why do you watch this? I love it so much. I, why? You know, I, I like to watch The Office. I want to laugh. The world's sad enough. Uh, that, that was me, not the Bible. Okay. You guys are like my marriage counselors. I can't afford it. So I just <laughs> got to get it out here. Got to get it out soon. But in the horror movies... Get her out of the point, Blake. In the horror movies, uh, when we think of demonic activity, what do we think about? We think about the person's head twisting around. You know, it's, it's totally nuts. But that's not actually how the Bible talks about demonic activity. When the Bible talks about demonic activity, it's not about Satan twisting our head around. It's about him twisting what's inside of our head around. That's why he says, deliver us from temptation. Because where does temptation start? Temptation starts right here. It starts in between my ears. 
And oftentimes I could be my own worst enemy. If I don't take those thoughts captive immediately, those thoughts of hate and those thoughts of violence, those thoughts of lust, those thoughts, they're just thoughts. That's all they are. And it's easy to allow myself to go in a room and to think about them by myself, tell nobody, do nothing about them. But what happens is those thoughts then become desires and those desires then become action. And when those desires become actions, you know what the result is? The result is death. And what is Satan? But the king of death. What does he want? He wants to steal and destroy. He wants to kill. And when I don't take those thoughts captive, what am I doing? I'm doing the work of Satan. Friends, that is what happened here today. And so we need to first pray for our own minds. That God would help us take those thoughts captive. That He would show us when there's a lie in our heads. Because you have more lies go through your head than you even know. I know I do. A lot of times I don't even know it until it's already ruined my life. I need God to show me when I'm believing a lie so that I can stop the twisting that's going on in my head. Now, as we close, I want to close with this. And this is one of those Christian truths that is so hard to believe in the moment. It's just so difficult. And that is this, that our God specializes in taking what Satan means for evil and turning it into His ultimate good and our ultimate good. It is so hard to look at something like this. And say, how in the world, God, could you make something good come out of 19 innocent children dying? How could this happen? How, God, could there be any good to come out of this? And what I think God wants us to do, and what I've been trying to do this whole sermon, is to look at the cross of Jesus. The worst thing that ever happened in human history was not what happened in Texas, although that was terrible and it was awful. The worst thing that ever happened in human history was when the second member of the Trinity stepped out of heaven, took on human flesh, lived a perfectly sinless life, and we killed Him anyways. And as you looked at the cross of Jesus, there was nothing good in it. Nothing. His disciples scattered. There were no believers left. What a terrible, awful thing to happen. And yet God took that worst Thing that has ever happened in world history and he turned it into ultimate good and he can do it again and he will do it again but friends it starts with us being people of prayer who are transformed by that gospel message let me pray for us jesus we need you we cry out desperately you are the only answer to this Jesus, thank you for giving your life so that we might be children of God. That we can call out to him not just as our heavenly father, but we can call out to him as our dad. As we call out, we ask for help. We ask for your spirit to show us what we are to do. And God, I pray that this week you would show us what we are to bring to give next week as we send an offering, doing the little bit that we can do and trusting that you will multiply it in a way that only you can. God, we do not see the good and we may never see the good on this side of heaven, but we believe and we trust that you'll bring the good out of it because we've seen you do it ultimately. And if you would not spare your own son, how will you also not be with us in all of these things? God, it is in your name that I pray. And friends, if you would, take about 20 seconds, eyes closed, head bowed, and pray, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? And I want you to ask him specifically, God, what are you calling me to bring next week for the offering for this family? And I want you to listen, as scary as it might be. God, we pray for the courage to obey what you've called us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Friends, if you would, let's stand and praise this God.
Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.